I don't really know where it came from. I don't remember the last 15 minutes of the race uh, at all. It's a complete blackout. And I managed to take all the skin off the bottom of my feet. So my main memory is running and oh. lying in the uh, first aid tent, getting iodine poured all oh. over them, which was absolutely horrible. Hello and welcome to The Run-In, sponsored by Envy and Straight Compasses. This week, our main interview is with seven-time World Championships orienteer, Holly Orr, all about her whole career, basically. Travels from Scotland, Norway, lakes, Norway, back again to the lakes, and um, all everything that she's been doing in between, a bit about her orienteering philosophy as well. But we start with the news from the last couple of weeks. And of course, we had that Lakes Reloaded events going on um, up, of course, in the Lake District, the UK Elite O-League. Two events, middle distance and long distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruslan Beaches first on that Saturday. And um, Will, you ended up not racing in the end, but um, it looked like a another again set of absolutely fantastic courses do you have some kind of insight you can bring to us yeah so sadly i i had a family thing that i had to stay back for in the end which um i would i think i would have raised terribly if i was up there so uh, um made the choice <laughs> to uh, yeah good good job probably um but made yeah made the choice to stay home and not go up which was pretty gutting when the uh the what looked like apocalyptic weather rolled in and everyone was just soaking wet like drowned rats um in the forest because for some reason i must be mad that that really appealed to me (laughs) (laughs) i've no idea why it looked fantastic fun um so yeah so just dreadful weather all day rustling beaches you know really steep beach woodland in the lakes loads of crags loads of rocks and apparently underfoot it was just treacherous you know you put one foot in the wrong place or hit a, a patch of mud or or rock that someone else had already run over and you could just be sliding down the hill. So really, firstly, technically very difficult running-wise anyway. And then in that rain um, of the first return back to competition for a lot of people, mm. probably, you know, met with a bit of a baptism of fire for, for quite a few. And you saw some big mistakes, mm. big mistakes from people mm. out there. Um, lots of red on the wind splits. <laughs> you should have a look at the um so wind splits is up we've also got root gadget up i'm just having a little look now and it's just uh, this whole kind of section with loads of loads and loads of parallel re-entrance loads of crags oh it looks amazing and and i think people i think i heard some comments you know one one such a great middle distance course one of the best middle distance courses in this country mm. i think it's one of the best areas for middle distance mm. in the country in britain yeah i think anyone coming to britain to orienteer definitely a place to go because as soon as you get into the wrong re-entrant with the wrong crag it looks exactly the same as the next one over that the controller be in and you've mm. instantly lost 30 seconds to, to a minute because they're quite steep as well so finding a slot through them or getting over them in that kind of weather really difficult um so apparently yeah people were just all over the shop uh which we makes it very entertaining for looking at root gadget and also for the people in the forest, I think as well. Yeah, yeah, impressive. So we've got some results. Uh, so the men, uh, Ali Thomas taking that win. Very um, impressive win. Yeah, very very good. Uh, Gigi Graham Grissard in second and Alistair McLeod in third for that one. Um, yeah, so a one minute thirty one lead by Ali Thomas. You know, still a junior. Yeah, I home terrain up in the lakes, um, mm-hmm. and they the juniors had a couple of races up there 
for the junior test races for Jaywalk a few weeks back. So we said before on the last podcast that maybe they actually had a bit of race fitness now compared to other people and maybe that was the difference or um yeah, maybe this is the uh the new generation coming through. Um yeah. you know, Gigi uh, multiple you know, how how many walks has he done now? What? Ten, twelve? Oh, um something like that. Lots. More. Um, and Ali, who's who's not yet to do one, but fighting out at the front with a yeah. quite an impressive win. So, yeah, yeah, pretty good. And women's, so we had Sarah Jones taking that win again. Another one from the Lake District. Uh, Laura King in second. Cecilia Anderson in third. We've also had we had Grace Malloy down in fifth, and Florence Haynes her comeback after a two year break from orienteering in sixth place. Pretty great. A I think possibly the most impressive. Well. Yeah, most Sorry? impressive run of the day, that one from Florence. Yeah, pretty. I mean, to be back, you know, in such tough terrain after two years away is pretty epic. And Anne Edwards, mm. again, fifth until she missed out number 18, but was right up there too. So, yeah, great clash are, are there for the women's results. All, all quite young as well, those um, the, the front five. So it's good to see that essentially it's just a well, and Florence as well. Um, it's, you know... A lot of young, good juniors coming through who are, who are technically pretty, uh, pretty decent at the moment. So it's exciting. That Although all, you've yeah. got to think, our some of our, our, um, you know, our forest women on the GB team, they're not in the UK. They're, you know, that's true. That's yeah. Joe Shepherd, um, Charlotte Watson, Cat Taylor. Um, yeah, Cat Taylor. People like that who are a bit older. But yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It's great to see. Um, yeah, Sarah Jones get that win by 34 seconds over Laura King, someone we, who we hadn't really talked about much um, in our preview for this, uh, putting in a good good run. Absolutely. And then Sunday was on to, uh, on to Graveweight for the mm. what has been deemed the most, I don't know, hardcore long distance that some of the, some of the guys and girls running have ever faced, I think. I've, I've seen some comments of. Oh, you know, just- yes. 90, 100 minutes, a proper hardcore slog. I think it was 13k straight line distance for a, a winning time of 91 for Gigi. Um, mm. Yeah, just brutal. And he was like five minutes quicker yeah. than anybody else as well. So that's what, you know, he does 90 minutes. But if you're like, you know, 10th or even midway down the results then that's like you're at a long, long, long old time. And mm. I love to see it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it looked like a proper savage course. So starting in some kind of craggy um, mix mix of woodland and scrappy rough open, going over the top of the hills into um, a couple of butterflies for the for the men and the women in what's quite a um, quite a deep bit of pine forest, which is a mixture between dark green and light green, and then you know a couple of long legs out of that over the other mm. side of the area into some slightly more wider forest. Um, it's a bit more kind of beach woodland and then, uh, and then coming back, working way through the rocks and doing a load of slopo coming back. And mm. not just the, uh, not just the navigation that people struggle with on this one, Catherine, was it? Cause there no. was a significant number of missed punches and there's some controversies that I'd like to get into anyway, but yes. we'll, I think we'll start with the missed punches. Yes. Nathan Lawson, who won both of the long legs but missed punch twice. Dan Spencer, who was on for the second fastest time. Pete Bray, Pippa Archer, Louise Adams, Pippa Carcass. And on, on the men's course, there's loads of them. I, I'm not even going to mention because there's so there's a load of um, missed punches. And is this because of kind of because of this butterfly loop? So, yeah. So what I um, what I heard from the guys who were there was that they uh, 
the men's and the women's controls at the centre of the butterfly were two different ones. And I could get this the wrong way around. The men's being 168 and the women's being 188 are on very similar features, around about 50 to 60 metres apart. So kind of pushing the boundaries of how close they can be. And as people were coming back through to the centre of the butterflies or as they were hitting it for the first time, they were going to the wrong control, you know, looking at the code, very similar codes. And, um, similar and shape punching the wrong... to the letters, to the numbers, sorry, as well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and punching the wrong one. And, uh, and yeah, raft of mispunches. And whether that's... I, th- I think there's a couple of questions on... It's very easy for me to sit here and say this, and I think people can call me out if they want to and, and say, you know, well, what are you talking about? Because you're not there. <laughs> um, but it, it's very easy to blame the, uh, blame the codes and blame how close they were and all of this. But you're going back into the central point a couple of times, for one. So if you're mispunching kind of a second or a third time, and this, and this isn't against anyone who raced, this is just kind of a view of someone who's, who's watching the race not having been in that situation... You, you should be getting the right control again. You should know what it looks like coming mm. from a different angle, but you should be going there. And I think some people just said they were they were lacking that focus and lacking that concentration and poor discipline after a while of not racing as well. So kind of um, saying that it was more it was more down to them and just their discipline and and being quite open up front about it. And I think this is quite a big thing of you know in in Britain we. are and myself included, I've had some ter- terrible mispunches over the years. We're quite guilty of just of messing up and mispunching or not reading a code. And I don't actually think that that British volunteers are good enough on a return from lockdown to not check their codes. Well, it's so easily done, though. You can you yeah. can really see, especially on a you know a long distance like this, and especially with it being back from lockdown. You know, you're you're on the edge because you're really trying to push it. And, you know, maybe what goes first is checking your codes. Yeah. Um, oh, no, absolutely. prioritise everything else. So I think really, like, you're, you're just not concentrating or you're not thinking enough about how the control looks like, you know, what the control looks like. Is this the same control that I've been before? Or maybe you're like, because it's a control you've been to before, you're kind of being a bit complacent. It's very easy to come complacent. Oh, I know where that one is. Yep, been to that one. B- bash, done it. In and out, straight through. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable, but we're saying get back to basics. <laughs> yeah, but that, saying that now, I'm probably going to go mispunching my next race. So. Oh, no. <laughs> Karma will hit me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's turn to the results. So Graham Gristwood won this one for the men's. Ali Thomas in second place. Peter Hodgkinson uh, in third, as we've already gone through our kind of notable, you know, Disqualified. Ah, well, oh well, Gigi and Ali were both non-competitive. Oh, okay. Um, because they declared that they had run the junior test races on the August Bank holiday, um, so they were technically non-competitive. There were some people in the results who should have been non-competitive, uh, who uh, who did not declare themselves. Interestingly, you just like the principle of it, right? Well, I, it's it's. I think it's more the point that it, uh, Ali and Gigi have lost points in the league. Um, oh, because they have declared because they have declared themselves so they, yeah so they theoretically if there are more races in the league because i think ali's leading it at the moment if there are more races and maybe he doesn't turn up because there's a lockdown in scotland or something like that he could now not win some cash because of it because mm-hmm. he because he did declare himself so it's just, people can people can say and do and think what they want but it's just an interesting thing to uh um yeah it's just interesting Okay, well, I'll take that as my cue to move on. Uh, so, oh, actually, we do the women's results first. Uh, Cecilia Anderson uh, won this one. Grace Malloy second and Laura King third. Great run and result from Cecilia. 
again a lot of our the kind of young women doing fantastically well cecilia you know a few world um cups under her belt for gb on the senior scene so yeah and and a win you know what by nearly six minutes as well so pretty very impressive, impressive. very cecilia. impressive yeah no, especially, especially, you know, she's Bristol, she's based in the South, like, yeah, applaud yeah. to her. Yeah, fantastic. Backing up last year and, yeah, hopefully goes even quicker next year as well. Yeah, great, great one to watch out for. I think, I think it goes back to what we were saying in chatting to Mark Nixon about development of, you know, our younger seniors. And I think, you know, maybe Cecilia's one to watch out for in, in a few years' time as she begins to kind of, like, get a little bit older in, in that um anyway uh moving on euro meetings off yeah yeah (laughs) thank god i cancelled my flights (laughs) (laughs) you did cancel them before it was off then no easyjet cancelled every flight that i could have taken out of the uk oh my Um, gosh so there was no actual way for me to get there with my original bookings um and then a few days later they cancelled so yeah, yeah, checks back in lockdown. Maximum number of people outside is six. All bars, restaurants, um, gyms, such are closed. So, yeah, organised taking a very hard decision of, of cancelling. But I think, yeah, it's probably only right, right that they're doing it in the circumstances. That that ruling that came in a couple of days ago from the Czech government has pretty much put, put the end to that. Um, I want to move on quickly junior competitions and i swear last time we recorded an episode about like as always happens a few hours after i'd done the episode it was like, <laughs> oh there's now there's here's some news about the junior world championship so they're not gonna have that extra kind of class of juniors who w- should have been finally a juniors this year and will be first year seniors next year they're in the end they decided they're just not going to do anything with with them being allowed to race in the in the junior world championships which i think sounds pretty reasonable like everyone was saying it was going to be quite complicated to be able to do that in the first place like having bigger teams and are they a completely separate age class everything like that but the postponed eyoc turned european junior orienteering champs in hungary are now scheduled for the middle end of april 2021 and they're gonna basically have the same age groups as as 2020 so Mm. exactly the same eligible so if you were an mw20 an mw18 mw16 in 2020 you're still going to be carrying on that same age class into 2021 and the decision about whether that's going to be held will be made in january and the European Youth Orienteering Championships in 2021, so not the delayed 2021s, which is going to be in Lithuania, they are postponed till the till the middle of August. So to give those youth competitors kind of enough space between that postponed one from 2020 and the actual one from 2021. And finally, oh, another couple of things. Junior European Cup postponed and rescheduled for beginning of April and the Junior World Orienteering Championships, which have been, which were meant to be in Turkey this year, have been moved back to its usual summer date. So that's the middle of July 2021. Uh, not sure there's much to say about those, other than no. that is what's going on. It's yeah. all a bit of a crazy uh, time. Busy spring. Everything's moving around. Yeah, very busy spring for the juniors, but good that they've got the races. Yes, we keep our fingers crossed for all of you. Um, yeah. And finally, I've got some videos out. Uh, that I've been working on with the lovely people up in uh, MDOC, Manchester and District, making some kind of uh, videos for kind of newcomers 
and promoting particularly the urban slash park aspect of orienteering you know really be, being able to get out orienteering on your doorstep it doesn't have to be in a forest completely in the middle of nowhere and the whole covid situation has meant we've put a bit of a, a permanent course focus on things as well so uh, you know if you run your, run your club's website feel free to kind of embed these in your club's um in, in your club's website to share to anybody uh, you can find them or if you search Manta- Manchester and District Orienteering Club on YouTube, you'll be able to find those. So, yeah, something I've been working on for a little bit of a while and now out in the public. But let's move on to our main interview this week, which is with one of GB's top women in the forest in the last few years, in the last 10 years even. Decade, uh, yeah. Hey, yeah, whole decade since her first World Championships. Hailing from Scotland few periods in Norway now residing in the lakes our guest this week is Holly Orr. So Holly thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I want to start out where it all began with your orienteering experiences so I want to talk a little bit about how you initially got into the sport and then some of your experiences at Scott Joss as well. Yeah my introduction wasn't my family didn't do it to start with which was is probably a bit unusual. We were on holiday in France with some family friends at Longhurst and did something at a campsite which involved getting dropped off in a forest and having to find your way back and I think we all really enjoyed it when we came back. Uh, Gary and Louise had both been orienteers before when they were younger and they said oh you should come and give it a try so uh, we did and all I remember from the start is taking a picnic and stopping halfway round at the play park so I don't think we were particularly competitive or fussed about it um so yeah and then it just went from there oh that's so good yeah I do I guess when do you start remembering like feeling a bit more competitive about the whole thing I remember Highland 99 and that was probably the first time where I remember it being a proper race because I remember Mm. not doing very well and being quite annoyed um (laughs) And I think most things before that were kind of just a bit of a jolly on a Sunday. What do you remember really liking about it? What kept you get, What kept you going? I don't know. I think, I mean, I was always into sports, so the weekend was always something active um, and orienteering became part of it. And I think when I went into Scott Joss, you kind of, you get that community and you get the friends and you got to go away from home, which was exciting and new places and different people. And I think probably... It was it was more that than anything else. I was always sporty, so I I think I would have done some sport, uh, mm-hmm. no matter what it was. And but I think the sort of Scott Joss led me down the orienteering routes before any other sport sort of got more serious. Um, so mm-hmm. it became the dominant one. What other sports did you do then? Um, anything that got me out of class. <laughs> Football, Sounds hockey, perfect. yeah, tennis. Volleyball, athletics, you name it. I uh, I played golf at one point as well, which wow. I'm not sure I would want to admit, but yeah, played a couple <laughs> of years of golf. So so kind of Scott Joss made orienteering win out. And so Will and I, you know, we're from England. We have the the regional squads being very... <clears throat> I mean, Will's East Mids, I'm South Central. They're quite small. We'll pretty much have anyone who can do an orange course. We meet up for like on a Saturday, maybe like morning and afternoon session. So when you were there, how does Scott Joss kind of work and how is it different to to that kind of a setup? Yeah, I mean, I think we were really lucky and 
it was Maureen and Bill that kind of drove the squad at that point and they put a lot of work and effort into it and I, th- I guess maybe every six weeks we would have a weekend away um, and they would spread them throughout the country two minibus full probably anywhere mm. around 24 of us there at any one time and it was a at that age, it was a full-on weekend of training. You would typically go up on the Friday, train Saturday morning, su- Saturday afternoon, and then train Sunday morning and maybe do a sort of small race at the end and leave early sa- Sunday afternoon to head home. So, yeah, it was quite it's quite different to what you guys have been exposed to. So it was really yeah. lucky. I guess that's because, you know, there's there's squad members from all over Scotland and you've got to travel quite far to, to meet up as a group. Yeah, I think so, and and also I guess they felt you got quite a lot out of doing those weekends. We would always have a mini race at some point, and you got to stay away, and you know there was a lot of social and uh, development benefits for the kids as well at that age um, that it brought as well as the orienteering. So, mm, and simply just like staying away for a weekend, that's great. Yeah, I know. I remember getting the train home after my first one, and. We didn't have phones at that age, and I must have been about 13. And I'd obviously packed everything but the kitchen sink, and I had to lug, <laughs> lug this bag all the way up the hill back to the house. And, uh, yeah, you got a lot of freedom, a lot of responsibility. That's good. And I always remember when I, you know, when I was in squad... Um, you know, we'd have we'd have anybody we can get, and the, and then all the Scots saying, "Oh no, I had to like get selected to be <laughs> in this squad," and I was like, "What?" Yeah, well, that was. I mean, that's uh, probably what got got me hooked because I think they got my age wrong. Because when they first we got the letter through to say, "Oh, you've been invited to Scott Josh," and obviously we didn't have any clue what it was as a family. Mm. So my dad phoned around some of the people that he knew and said, "What's this Scott Josh thing? Holly's got a letter." Um, and I went to the first weekend and I remember Maureen saying to me, oh, so when you run W14? And I said, oh, no, no, I'm only W12. And then, so I think they, so I got an extra year out of them by accident. <laughs> you managed to sneak that. Are you at like one end of the year for like birthdays or something? I don't know. No, but I think because we didn't really know what was going on, we would go to events and I would just enter whatever course I fancied. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, and I think in Scotland it's quite prevalent. You never really run your own age class. You, I mean, I think I was 16 when I ran Elite W21 for the first time. <gasps> wow. Um, <laughs> that's, so, yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. But, that's pretty cool. Um, well, so what kind of, like, were the biggest things you learned then um, training in Scotland? Like, what were your biggest takeaways? Um, I guess the, the coaches that they had were quite disciplined I guess Bill especially taught you how important the technique was and there was a lot of focus on technique and a lot of focus on uh, execution and control and your sort of strategy for things. And a bit later on then there came the focus on the physical side. Um, so I think they had quite a nice balance there to drill into people that, you know, yes, you had to be physically fit, but the technical side was just as important. And did... You know, does that really influence like your? I don't know. I like to call it orienteering philosophy. Like how you think orienteering should be done. You know, was that kind of based on those experiences as a junior? Um. Yeah, I think they taught you early on that 
you had to think about the technique. You know, it wasn't something that you just inherently did. It was something that it was a skill that you had to train and you had to adopt uh, the techniques and the repeatability and you had to make your own fundamentals about how how you oriented and what your skill set was and what your strengths and weaknesses were. I think that's wise advice. I want to move on to um, actually do a big leap and move from contrast Scotland to um, Norway. How was the, how was the, the training change when you moved to Halden? Um, and yeah. when when did you move to Halden? And what age were you when you moved there? When was that? Um, so I did sort of two stints when I was at uni. You had to do a work placement. So in two thousand and eleven, I did nine months there. Um, from straight after Christmas to sort of September time back to starting uni again. Mm. And then I went back again in 2015, February 2015, um, preparation for the World Champs in Scotland. Both times were quite different. I think when I went first time, I was quite naive and I was it was the first time I was working as well, so I was trying to balance that. And it was the middle of winter and it was bloody freezing. <laughs> and snow and I think it was just it was all quite overwhelming and it took me a few months to get used to it but I think the second I mean obviously it didn't put me off so I went back again with the sort of drivers to embed myself in their training culture um I think to be honest the philosophy that they have and the philosophy that Scott Joss have is quite similar um they're very technique focused um it's probably just the volume of technique that they do over there to com- compare to what anyone would ever train here is is huge. Yeah, there's just so much forest on your doorstep. Yeah, and a lot of the... I was probably a bit different because I did maintain quite a lot of my own physical training, um, whereas a lot of the club training, it's, it's all uh, or almost all uh, technical-based, all the sessions that they organise, whereas I think... In the UK, there's a bit more of a physical focus. So there's maybe, you know, a club might organise one orienteering session for one physical session if they do Mm. one of each. Whereas there, it was sort of 75% orienteering and 25% physical. Yeah. So did you say you went to Norway to prepare for Scotland World Championships? Yes. (laughs) Okay. How what what was your philosophy behind that? What was your re- like why did you do that? Um so I had been living and working in the lakes and I had quite a stressful job and I couldn't really train alongside it or I could but it was all on my own and it was organizing my own planning my own. There was a lot of energy involved in it. I just didn't have that energy to give. And so I decided that I was going to quit and had to think about what I wanted to do. And I think in all of that, I didn't really have this this sort of headspace to to go to Scotland and plan all my own training and be sort of self-sufficient because that would have taken a bit of plan, forward planning. Um, so I decided I'd go to Norway where the terrain is fairly similar. There were some really good people there to train with, so I knew I was going to get pushed quite hard and all the training was going to be organised. So it was just... I mean, maybe it was the lazy option or the easy option. And I also, I mean, the long-term plan, I did go to prepare for world champs in 15, but obviously there was Sweden in 17 
and I did go with the anticipation of trying to find a job out there. So it was a sort of there was a long more long term plan um, involved. That's still a huge decision to make. Um, yes and no. I think I've always believed that you 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 can only make yourself happy. You, the decisions are in your hands and. I probably wasn't particularly happy with what I was doing beforehand and something had to change and you got to take a risk and if I wasn't going to try it then then it was kind of quit or give it a go was probably the the bridge that I was at um, and I didn't quite feel I'd given it everything and would mm. maybe regret quitting at that point so I thought I'd give it a shot. Yeah change something and then ha- so how long were you out there then? Um, Two and a half years. So came back after the World Champs in Estonia. Yeah, 2017, 2017, mm. which was your last World Champs. So Will and I were trying to, to have a look at and trying to do some digging about you, find out what questions to ask before this. And we couldn't mm. quite figure out, you know, your last World Cup race was 2018, which was in Norway, uh, but n- not any kind of international stuff since then, I believe. So where are you at? Are you on a break? Are you retired? Are you thinking, oh, maybe <laughs> there's a little bit left? I want to do so. Want to do a bit more? Um, unknown. I think I left with the intent intention that that was it. Um, I did one year fell racing and really enjoyed that in two thousand nineteen. Uh, no, eighteen. Sorry, and then in nineteen I did sort of get the bug back a little bit and started to do some training quietly just to see where I was at and how much effort it would take. I was obviously back to full-time working um, and I did have ambitions to go to Norway. I did the old county tops fell race on not probably enough training and got a stress fracture um, and it just, it wasn't quite there in time. I didn't... I was only going to go if I if I knew I was going to do well. So I could have given it half an attempt, I think, with where I was in terms of fitness at the time. But I wasn't really interested in half an attempt. So I just called it quits on the whole idea. So now, I don't know. I think this year is just completely up in the air. I'm still keeping relatively fit. It's not out of the question. I enjoy the Czech Republic. Obviously, there's some really nice terrain so there is a little bit of an inkling to do something about it but I'm not sure I'm back to training on my own so I've got that battle again uh, to find Mm. the time and the energy to do it so there's some big decisions if I was to go for it yeah but your best result um, is sixth place in the long distance in the Czech Republic in 2016 yeah so do you have some good memories from there uh, yeah, yeah, some really good memories, um, and maybe that's a factor in it. And I, I guess maybe you have to be a bit careful that the driver is not nostalgia rather than actual drive to do well and and train. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really nice country to orienteer in, and they've got a fantastic ethos, and it's really the the energy around the events they put on are really good. So. Yeah, I was there for the World Cup final a few years back and it was really, really great. I'm so excited to go back and it was great. What do you remember of the that race in 2016, the European Champs? Uh, it was really good. I think I was really surprised. I'd qualified far higher than I had ever anticipated. So I was really nervous at the start because you're sort of running around with these people that 
normally completely wipe the floor with you and that was quite a daunting task and then we had this mammoth long road leg and I've never been the quickest it's not really my strength and I thought oh here we go I'm out for the, out before we even get the race started uh, but it seemed to keep going and to be honest I don't really know where it came from I don't remember the last 15 minutes of the race uh, at all it's a complete blackout and I managed to take all the skin off the bottom of my feet so my main memory is running and oh. lying in the uh First aid tent getting iodine poured all oh over them, my. which was absolutely horrible. Um, oh my just god! Blist- terrible blisters. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so then I didn't run the middle distance after that because uh, I I couldn't yeah I couldn't run basically. Sounds like you wouldn't be able to stand. Goodness <laughs> me! But so did it feel like you know you saw that long leg that long road running like long track road wrong road running leg and you're like oh no this isn't a thing so did you did it feel like a good race when it was going on or did you feel like we were expected to come much lower than you ended up um i knew it was quite good because anima finca who i was in Hals at the time and i'd done a lot of training with um and some of the other girls that were there that were obviously at the european champs as well so i knew sort of where we where i stood within them and i actually caught her up um, mm. She had unfortunately dislocated her shoulder, so she wasn't having a great day. And we, we, so I knew I was doing quite well when that happened. And then we ran a lot of it, sort of cat and mousing a little bit. So I knew things were going well, but you have, you don't know. And there was no spectator control either. So, oh, okay, I was about to that. Yeah, there was no feedback. Um, so it wasn't until I got to the finish that. I found out just how well it had gone. Yeah, and was That's that nice. was that a big surprise? Yeah, yeah, huge. I'd spent a lot of the the winter injured, so I didn't really think I had. I guess I went for a top twenty would have been a really good result. Um, yeah. So I was quite surprised. Yeah, ending up the podium. So was that in like close to a perfect race for you? Um, yeah, I guess so. I remember one poor route choice at the end, and apart from that, things went pretty, pretty well. Uh, and apart from the feet, obviously. And apart from the feet, yes. <laughs> but I think something in my brain just turned that bit off, or it's blo- it's bl- blanked it out. I'm not sure which. <laughs> <laughs> not worth remembering. It's so painful. No, exactly. <laughs> wow. Having all that time in Norway, stopping you know a couple of years before the Norwegian World Championships is that hard decision to make? Yeah, well, it, yes and no. It was hard because I think there was a lot of anticipation. I felt quite a lot of it. Not social pressure is probably the wrong word, but pressure from the club. Yeah, pressure from the club, and also you know externally because a lot of people sort of make the assumption that you're there because there was going to be that. Norwegian world champs there was the oh. Swedish one which was just over the border and then there was the Norwegian one so it was kind of a a natural flow of things um but I probably I probably got to the same point that I was before I moved out that I was no longer really it wasn't giving me the enjoyment it was before I needed a new challenge I wasn't sure what I would have changed to get any better um, and I think without an answer to that question, I realised that I wasn't really going to get any better. Um, and if I wasn't going to get any better, then I wasn't really interested in just 
doing the same thing over and over. So in the end, it was quite an easy decision. But the lead up was quite a hard period because that's quite a lot to get your head around. And you've obviously put a lot of effort in over the years beforehand. And it's not the decision people anticipate. And mm. So you are you pretty competitive or is it more about like making that improvement as you're saying if you're not getting better then what's then what's the point or is it the fact that you weren't able to compete at as at a level that you would like to um no I, I mean I was happy competing where I was there's a lot of really good races in Norway and I guess maybe if I had a sort of settled life there I could have carried on with that but I always think there's two types of people in sport there's people that get the enjoyment out of the process and people that get the enjoyment out of the results and I don't actually get much enjoyment out of the results it's not what drives me what drives me is the sort of process of making a plan and improving and working out what your strengths and weaknesses are and how you work on those and then seeing the results from that work um Mm. so yeah so I think it was it was a big a big factor was just the not being able not seeing how I would improve I didn't have enough control over certain bits of my life that meant I could change them to Mm. change what I needed to get better. And I guess that's kind of what makes orienteering such a frustrating sport in some ways. Like, you want to be able to look at all the stats and be like, if I train like this, I should get better, blah, 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 or I should, you know, feel better in the terrain. And then, you know, some days or, you know, it's... It, there's so much variation in the sport there's so much unpredictability that it some I guess sometimes it feels like whatever you were trying to throw at it nothing would stick yeah and I think also a, a huge part of it's mental and I think that was the biggest sort of bust that hit me in some ways was that I kind of realized that I'm not actually sure I ever had the mental strength to do really well um and or the the sort of confidence in my own ability and without that you know you're always hampering yourself you're always one step behind on the start line if you don't have if you can't stand the start line and have the confidence that you're going to produce those results then you're not going to produce them and I knew I probably had a huge amount of work to have that self-confidence and yeah I didn't have the energy to put that work in at that point I guess Oh no, so that's a, it's a lot of work to do. So do you mm. think, you know, maybe objectively looking at the sport, like confidence is the biggest kind of mental side that you that a runner needs to have? Yeah, and I mean, it's not sort of, you're not talking bravado and outwards confidence. It's the confidence that, you know, you stand in the start line, you're one, you're fit enough, and you two, you can pick up that mar- map and you don't have any doubts that the processes you have in place won't get you to the finish without making a mistake. And Mm -hmm. there'll always be small mistakes. But I think if you stand in the start line and you have any doubts or worries about those small mistakes, you're you're on the back foot. Your Mm -hmm. process and confidence has to be so robust that you know you're just going to pick one control after the other and you follow the same process and and it's almost like a tick box exercise. Yeah, I can really um, see that in the way that, you know, I can do exactly that in a southern forest where I've grown up and I know reasonably well. But the first time I ever orienteered in Norway, which was in 2018 at that pre-running one of the races for that um, World Cup, 
it was such a disaster and I'm like it just all looks different <laughs> oh my god I get like yeah. none of my none of my like basic things that would work you know would were, were working like I couldn't feel like I didn't feel like I could move through the terrain oh but yeah it's because and but I was extra held back I think because I just had no confidence in being there yeah and especially interna- you know on the international scene because you are going from one terrain to the other and we're not in the Swiss team where they do a training camp every other week in every other location you know you're lucky if you've if you've been on a map before you stand in the start line at a world cup and you're sort of thrown in at the deep end yeah did it did it feel like that like you were at a bit of a disadvantage what what was it um what did what did mark nixon call it being born swiss like blood doping like yeah. you know, you're, yeah. you're like you're you're basically like on a the front foot just being Swiss because you can do all these things and you have this great setup like did that feel really frustrating from um, your perspective yeah because I also lived with a couple of Swiss whilst I was in Norway so I kind of saw it firsthand. you can't get frustrated because you know you're not you're not in that situation it's not available to you so it's not you can't make the decision to to have what they have you can only make the decisions to make what you have work to the best of your advantage. It wasn't something that ever frustrated me because it was never something that was available. Um, mm. But it is hard to watch and I think it was quite hard there just to hear them talk because that's the harder bit is that, you know, do they have an appreciation of quite how good they've got it? And I think that's maybe what winds people up a bit. <laughs> I, I think we can all assume from the... Uh... <laughs> the quotes coming out from them on Instagram is Drava during lockdown when it was, oh, this is the first time I've not trained with someone in two years on just any training session. Then no, no. Yeah. probably don't. <laughs> and I think well, there was one, she was complaining how many flights she had to book. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a real hardship. That is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true first world problems. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> just go, going back to like the the time element of, you know, the time that you had to put in to make the improvements that you would have needed to make, you know, to keep on improving, getting the better results. I guess people listening might think that, oh, maybe that's because you were focusing on the forest long and that's going to be eating up more time. Was there any kind of idea that popped in your head of switching over to sprint maybe and taking a bit of the pressure of all of the training camps and all of the time in the forest and getting time on your feet in to uh, to just get that change? Um. Maybe, but I have a slight confession that I find sprint training intensely boring. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was never that thought never even crossed my mind. I enjoy a sprint a race. Yeah, <laughs> but again, I think sprint takes a lot more training than uh, it's less time consuming because there's less travel and you can do it in more places, etc. But I think the actual physical time you spend training is pretty similar maybe there's more miles involved in the long distance but i know from the british guys that focus on sprint you know their training is is pretty intense and full-on and i wouldn't have said it was any less intense and full-on than training for the long is and not as enjoyable for you yeah no (laughs) yeah (laughs) take me to a forest any day (laughs) yeah I, I want to move on to some talk about some of the big relays. You've been still running some of the big relays for Halden. Great results there. Do you have some good memories from those those events, those relays? Yeah, I mean the relays are fantastic. I guess you've both been 
it's uh, it's something that I would advocate any orienteer to do at least once in their life. And I've been really lucky with Harden to to run in some really good teams and get some good results. I think two probably stand out. And to be honest, the one where we got the best result, I had my worst run. Um, and the one where we were all quite disappointed, I had my best run. So it was kind of... <laughs> where, when we won Venla... I had some stomach issues, so I spent most of the time in the Portaloo, apart from the time that I spent in the forest. So I didn't really feel like I contributed very much to that. I think I just avoid, narrowly avoided sabotaging the whole thing. But of course, that was fantastic and really cool. And it was really tough, actually, because the team selection for that year was really, really hard. There was six of us going for the four places. And, you know, you'd trained all year with these girls and we all knew that it was going to be down to the wire for the selection and people were going to be really upset. So actually winning made it better because I think those girls that hadn't quite made the team realised just how tough it was to get into the team and they felt part of that win as well because we'd all pushed ourselves for those final places. And I think that was my main motivator when I was feeling like death, running around thinking, well, there's two other people sat, or they weren't sat, they were obviously in the second team who would have given anything to be in my position. Yeah, can you imagine if you'd like n- not, you know, come forth or something, and then the the other girls would be like, "Well, if I were on the team, yeah, I know. <laughs> you'd never live it down. Put the paper yeah. bag over your head and walk away." Um, oh, that must be really conflicting, though. Thinking you, you know, you've not done that great a job, but your team's won. So you have to like celebrate with the team, but like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's soon forgot. I mean, it's probably only me that remembers that. It's kind of soon forgotten in the. Mm midst of time so um. oh, I just set up the next leg runner perfectly for their situation yeah. didn't it so it's all planned <laughs> all, all goes planned. to plan will you continue doing those Holly I have done a couple and I'm not sure time is a big factor at the moment in terms of getting time off and that sort of thing so I do have to be quite selective about what I would do if I was going to do things seriously again so I'm not sure is probably the question is the answer rather to the question? Could turn up for a Scottish ad hoc team, maybe. If yeah, you were exactly. For holiday. <laughs> yeah. So not gone just yet. No, no. Oh, I'd definitely do it again. Um, no doubt about it. Just whether it would be part of my plan in the next couple of years, I'm not sure. So you went back to the lakes and you said you did kind of a year doing more fell running, things like that. Was that a pretty natural change for you then after coming away from the O? Um. Yeah. I mean, when I lived here before. Uh, I basically moved straight back to the same place that I'd left in 2015 and the same job. So it was quite a natural, <laughs> easy move back in. Um, and I was part of the Fell Club and we had some good girls and they talked about, oh, we should try for the English Fell Champs as a team. Um, and I sort of said, yeah, let's give it a whirl. So it was more just as something to do. I think I was fit and you kind of, and you're used to training. I think I think that's quite hard to stop you're used to the routine and you're used to quite strict controls on yourself and actually to let go of all of that has taken a good couple of years um to do and to be comfortable with the fact that you don't have to train every day and you don't necessarily have to watch what you eat every day and you know if you go to bed late that's all right um I think when you've thought like that for so many years it's quite hard to detrain yourself from that what was the hardest thing to let go of? 
Um, oh, good question. Or the easiest thing to pick up. Drink was probably the easiest thing to pick <laughs> up. <laughs> um, that wasn't helped by some housemates that I lived with. Uh, I think the sort of the daily routine. I'm quite a routine-driven person, and when I was training, I was into all the spreadsheets and the geeky stuff and. I think to let go of that routine was quite tough to stop starting the day and going, right, this is what I'm going to do and then I'll do this training. And, you know, to stop yourself thinking like that was probably the hardest. And I, I, I probably, if you ask people I interact with today, they'll tell you it's a load of rubbish that I've let go of that side of things. <laughs> <laughs> you still like planning everything? Yeah, in my own head. I'm not meticulous but I like to know what I plan to do. Yeah. Has that meant COVID's been really weird for you or not? No, to be honest, my life hasn't really changed much because I've continued working. I've sort of trained most of the time. I think almost because of COVID, you've, you, the routine's helped. I've eaten the same lunch every day for the last, or the same foods the whole way through the day for the last six months. So I've probably gone more to the routine than... <laughs> so maybe it has helped, I don't know. And hasn't stirred up any desires to to get back to international O and travel? Yeah, possibly. It's not ruled possibly. out. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, I want to kind of do a few, like, general kind of questions now about you know, through all of your orienteering career so far. Um, do you have, like, a most memorable international race or trip? Ooh, good question. And memorable for whatever reason you decide? <laughs> oh, jeez, don't know. Probably the most memorable was the first World Champs in Norway because I didn't expect to get selected at all. I don't know if you guys, if Will, I don't know if you were in the squad when Tony was, Tony Luhasson. I I experienced one training camp with Tony and it was both the most disorganised and most organised and best camp I've done in Britain (laughs) (laughs) at the same time. Yeah, so I think... I'm not sure if many people will know who Tony is, so we might need to give a bit of an explanation. He was, he was one of a kind. And I think, so I went and I was, I think, the youngest by nine years or something. I didn't really know anybody. I mean, they're all lovely, so I, I was very comfortable. Um, and I went for the middle distance and I completely bombed out and didn't even make the final. And that was the first race and we were there for, I think, 10 days. And what Tony and I did was the day after each race, because he was quite stressed and he wasn't really sleeping, uh, we went really early in the morning or sort of middle of the night because it was north of Norway, so it was light all the time. And we ran the races that had run the day before or the qualification ones. Mm, um, awesome. And just sort of generally had quite a good time. So I think that was probably the most memorable because it was all new and a big shock and things like Scott got sixth in the long, so that was really cool to be there to watch and... Tony was a bit of a guru, wasn't he? Like, cause he uh, yeah. Was, yeah, so Finnish coach of Edinburgh and GB for, what, like 2008 through to 2013 or something like that? Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. We went we went to Finland on a training camp, just me, Tom, Tony and another guy, and we turned up at the airport and he said, oh, he phoned somebody in this 
long-haired Finnish man turned up and we got in the back of his banged-up car and I was thinking, what the heck is going on here? And we drove for about two hours and the first hour was on main roads, that was all right, and then we got onto these small roads and I thought, oh, dear God, we're going to get killed in the middle of a Finnish forest and we pulled up at this hut and there was just cars parked everywhere and Tony just pointed and he said, I love that one and he gave them some cash and uh, I probably shouldn't be telling these stories. Um, and we got in, in that car and we, we drove away and then for the rest of the time in the lead up to the Finnish World Champs, you would just park this car on some gravel near the airport, put the key in the wheel and go and get your flight and then the next people would just whoever was coming next to do whatever training they were doing would just you'd tell them where the car was parked they'd go pick the car up and away you went <laughs> oh that is brilliant <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard many stories about tony and his cars like beat up mercs and things uh, yeah he was one of a kind <laughs> yes definitely very nice man but definitely one of a kind <laughs> yeah, some great pieces of advice though that he used to give. I can only imagine. Yeah, that experience in in Norway, kind of midsummer, would, must have been really cool. Does something he said fit into your my next question, which is best advice ever received? Orienting, well, orienting or not orienting advice? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. The one piece of advice that actually sticks in my head, and I I struggle to remember when she said it, but um, it was from Liz Campbell, who was the coach after, national team coach after, Tony. And she said to me at one point, and I'm sure it was at the start of a race, she just turned to me and she said, just remember to breathe. And, <laughs> and I, like, it sounds really stupid, but I thought, yeah, you know what? you got to have control of the simple things. Um, and as my mum said, don't sweat the petty stuff and don't pet the sweaty stuff. So <laughs> control what you can and... Um, the rest will look after itself I think that's some really good advice really good yeah just like mm. and a lot of what a lot of what people have said kind of on on our interviews is like it's just orienteering yeah it's not rocket science I mean it's really tough but like just go out and have a race yeah and enjoy it I mm. think that you know a lot of people forget that you don't do it for money and you don't do it for fame so you got to do it for enjoyment Either way, even if those two were still there, that still should be the most important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully. I want to go contrast that with most painful moments. And one of one of the contenders here, which I've got written down, miss punching on camera at Wok twenty fourteen on the last control. (laughs) Yeah, apologies, Holly. Sorry for bringing it up. No, it's all right. I've actually mispunched I think I've only completed one World Champs long race without mispunching which is not a very good statistic um yeah that's correct 2017 yeah that's not a great statistic (laughs) um yeah that was not the best day i mean to be honest i'd had a bit of a pants race anyway so i was pretty annoyed with myself and i got to the finish and people that i told after were really annoyed because i knew Judith had caught me up and I knew she was doing really well which is why I moved out to the side to let her go through and most people I told that to said that's ridiculous you're in a race if you were first there you take the closest punch anyway they said oh you've missed punched and then I went to ask the jurors and they basically said that was it and I just remember sort of throwing everything in the floor and running back to the accommodation and leaving everything else behind. <laughs> oh, so hang on, what happened? You let 
um, you did go past, you did Vida, and then you didn't punch the control. No, I did punch the control. So this is where the mm. controversy lies because, I mean, somebody sent me a video after where they time-lapsed it and they said, oh, you need to have your punch in for, I don't know what it is, 20 milliseconds or something. And yeah. they've time-lapsed it and my the SI card was in the box for three times longer than the the recommended uh, time requirement. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was in the box. It was some technical malfunction but they're not allowed to use video recordings. I thought you were about to say that they uh, they sent you a time lapse, so they went, yeah, clearly it's under 20. <laughs> yeah, more like, on. That is the most harsh video time lapse ever. <laughs> you managed the other 20 controls in the course, why did you have a problem with this one? Yeah. Um, no, so, uh, I mean, I think somebody wrote to SI on my behalf. I didn't do anything about it. Um, I think... Liz and the team management did quite a lot in the background to try and argue the case. Um, they wrote quite a sort of emotive letter saying, you know, this is on camera and it's a technical glitch. Um, mm. For me, I just stepped away and what was done was done. And they basically came back and said from the IOF letter of the law, they can't use video evidence if it's not recorded on the device itself, then it's, it doesn't count as disqualification. Yeah, I think I've had something like that before as well. I can't remember what kind of a race it was, but yeah, seeing again it, it be on camera and like, yeah, there's nothing they could do. Maybe it was the JK but, uh, 2019, but maybe it wasn't. <laughs> I don't know, um, where lots of people were disqualified. I think it happened mm-hmm. a lot but, um, at 2019, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so frustrating. Was that most painful or tied with blisters at the bottom of your feet after the Europeans or something like that? Um, Yeah, probably the blisters were painful. Actually, the one that sort of annoys me the most because I'm a stingy Scot was the JK in, was that 17 or 18? I think in Stafford, I can't remember. I think that must have been oh, 18. 18, yeah. Yep. And so I didn't hire an SI Air because obviously you pay more for that and I hadn't actually bought an SI Air and I lost the overall title by two seconds to Jess, which over the course of all those controls was probably more than two seconds so yeah that's <laughs> that's quite a painful one but that's entirely my own fault <laughs> forget the uh swiss gene doping it's technological non-doping yeah <laughs> oh yeah that's a painful one and we've got a few more questions before we finish off uh do you have a favorite terrain uh quite like sand dunes mm. uh quite like anything tough I didn't particularly like Estonia. I don't think anyone liked Estonia. Yeah, sand dunes is probably quite high up there. I liked forested sand dunes probably best. Mm. Yes, I will match that one. Yes, definitely. And um, final question: Would you do anything differently in over your career? Oh, surely everyone's answer to that is yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily. Not necessarily. Actually. Oh, yeah. Those are the other good ones. Uh, yeah, I think probably I would have taken the risk earlier in my career to move away. I had a bit of fallout of the, with the sport in 2012 and I think that sort of hurt me for a few years after. Um, and I think if I'd probably taken the risk at that point, I maybe would have 
sort of grown up and learnt a bit more a bit quicker. But you can't really have too many regrets. Life is what it is and you make the decisions with all the information at hand at the time. I didn't have the finances or uh, anything like that to, to do that at that point. So it wasn't, it was never really an option. Yeah, it's hard. You know, would you do anything differently? You made the, the best choices in the time. Like, I think that's like been the theme for, you know, this of, you know, all, all the decisions going through your career and making the, the best choice, like given the circumstances. And so I normally ask with, and end, end with asking a question which is basically like what's next but I guess who knows what's next <laughs> yeah I know I think everyone's asking that question next is tomorrow yeah and then it'll be Friday and the same lunch and the same dinner and... <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> cheese hummus uh, and uh, spinach sandwich that's the very very Good. nice very nice mm. um is there anything else Holly you want to talk about that we haven't asked you no it's been a while since I've thought about orienteering or talked about it so it's it's been nice it's I think the 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 biggest regret and the thing that you know drives you to kind of think about going back is you have a huge friend network and I think that's the biggest thing I miss to be honest so um yeah you don't get to see your friends so often you you rely on seeing them you know every once a month at least away for Mm. a weekend and you know, that's a huge part of your life that you have to to reorganise mm. and reprioritise and yeah. Are you someone who could go back at a different level? Not at the top level? I think in a few years. I mean I enjoy orienteering and actually when I first stopped I didn't want to orienteer for quite a long time and probably this last year or so I started to enjoy it again. So I think I would do it recreationally, but nowhere near the volume that I did. I enjoy lots of other things in life, so it would be more sporadic with other activities. Well, we hope we can see you on a start list with whatever expectations they may be for any result or any kind of fitness or whatever. It would be great to see you on a start list sometime soon. But um, until then, yeah, thanks very much for chatting, Holly. You're welcome. Anytime. So really great to hear from Holly there. Will, I feel like we've now pressed Holly into having a return to orienteering. Like, we're like, we must see you. Yeah. <laughs> we must see you on a start list. Like, um, in in whatever way you feel comfortable with. Well, if it hasn't worked, then I'm going to get a petition started. So oh, uh, Okay, you're really yeah. applying the pressure. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, I'd love to see her back, but yeah, no, fantastic interview. Oh, it was great to hear from her. Anyway, um, we're pretty much done with today's uh, episode. We've just got a little bit of a word um, from our sponsors, uh, Envy and Straight Compasses. And Will, I think you've been uh, testing out the crazy lights. Yeah, yeah. so I, uh, I managed to get to a, a, an event again for um, after missing the ones in the lakes and uh, used the crazy light on an urban event that South Midlands Orienteering Club put on in Milton Keynes. And mm-hmm. yeah... They're really great, you know, nice and responsive around the corners, coming out of them, accelerating, but also really grippy on the on the grass and a bit of the terrain in the woods. So excellent. Looking forward to getting out on some urban terrain with them again already. Fantastic. Well, you can get in touch with Mary Fleming if you're in the UK and you want to order some shoes or some compasses. And their email, Mary's email is nvstraight.uksales at gmail.com n-v-double-i-s-t-r number eight dot uk sales at gmail.com but that is it 
for today's episode. Don't forget, we're going to be having that little um, sprint episode with Holly coming up in about a week's time. Uh, look out for some great um, banquets chats and um some great i think great insight what was the most the biggest mistake she's seen um definitely good answers on uh, the sprint um but we will be back in a, a couple of weeks with our next episode and hopefully we're going to bring you a big young star from norway in this one i'll leave you with that tease we'll be back in a few weeks <laughs>